would turn back with me uh, to that last scripture reading, to Psalm 13. These six verses are our text for this evening. I want to begin um, in a way perhaps that I wouldn't normally, and I want to do so by raising really two questions. After having read this psalm, I trust that you and I should have these two questions in some form in our minds. The first question is, how does this psalm consist with faith? How do the cries, especially of the first two verses, agree with that state of a person in, in which they have lodged their souls upon God and his promises? They've entrusted themselves to the God who cannot lie. And so how can such a one pray as they do in these first two verses? The second question is how do these verses accord with Christian contentment? Not only how can a faithful soul, but how can a contented soul pray as the psalmist does in our text this evening? Submit to you that those are two very important questions. In order for us to take up this psalm and praise to God, in order for us to model our own prayers according to this psalm. Those two, those two questions are certainly crucial. As you look at the psalm, you'll notice that the psalm really does divide itself well into three equal parts. You notice that in the first two verses, you have something of the psalmist's affliction. As he goes to God in prayer, you recognize that he does so in several lines, with repetition, and also, of course, with that that beginning cry, how long? These first two verses outline for us the psalmist's extremity. And then quickly the psalmist moves in verses 3 to 4 to petition. He goes to God after having expressed his affliction, and he pours forth his soul to the Lord, pleading for deliverance. And then you find, of course, those last two verses. The psalmist leaves petition to come to a point of confession. That is a confession of his faith. The psalmist, afflicted as he may be, the psalmist pressed so as to plead for deliverance in the way that he does, is, as we find in these last two verses, a man possessed of faith. This is a soul pleading that has lodged itself upon the promises of God. It does hope in God. And so, friend, as we look at this text, you'll notice here that much of the themes that we encounter, many of them we've already encountered in this altar thus far. But I want you also to notice here that in this psalm, you are supposed to see here the breathings out of faith. Again, that's not new to us, of course. But in this psalm especially, our attention is fixed on the fact that the one who cries here is one who has lodged itself upon the promises of God. And so this text teaches us plainly that the saint earnestly pleads God's promises under affliction. The saint earnestly pleads God's promises under affliction. Now I want us to look at that theme under the three headings that really have already communicated. Those three divisions of the psalm really lead us to think through this well. If you think, first of all, the first two verses, we find the psalmist's extremity. In verses 3 and 4, we find his entreaty. In verses 5 and 6, we find his expectation. And so take, first of all, his extremity. 
Verses 1 and 2, again, that very familiar phrase, not only to Psalm 13, but throughout the Psalter, how long? The repetition in these first two verses is crucial. But I want you to notice, friend, that while, of course, this is poetry, these two lines are crucial for us to understand the man's affliction. Uh, This is not simply a a heaping up of, of ideas or requests that are meaningless. Uh, The psalmist is in many ways giving us a genuine description of his affliction. He describes for us in in, to some considerable detail the extent and even the effect of the affliction, even though we don't know its historical circumstance. The psalmist is giving us a real picture of his own experience here. And so I want us to attend to that this evening, first of all. And what you recognize immediately, friend, is that 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 condition that is here described is one of deep perplexity. The affliction described in verses 1 and 2, these are, these are not small things. This is not a trivial kind of pain. This is something that has driven the man genuinely to his extreme. And what we find here then is that perplexing afflictions, that is part of the believer's experience. The believer will know them. I want you to notice in verse 1 that the psalmist begins by giving us this sense that these afflictions have been protracted. He's been here for some time. How long? How long? He repeats again and again. And then he asks, will the Lord forget forever? Forever, in other words. Will the Lord's mercies be removed from him? Will, Will he forever be in this condition? Very much like our psalmist in this case, you find Psalm 88. A man who can say, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. Friend, we ought not read over these things too quickly. Here you have a man's experience that is of considerable length. In the case of Heman in Psalm 88, he says really the duration of his life. His affliction is protracted. Then, as you come to the next line, he says that he has taken counsel in his soul. And that's a Hebrewism that that really describes not only a man who, who is touched in the inmost part of his being by this affliction, but it also describes for us somebody who has genuinely made use of means, seeking to pull himself out from under this affliction. In other words, he's not been indolent as he suffered. He's not simply, he's not, as it were, been idle. He's made use of lawful means. He, in his own mind, has taken counsel so as to see a way out. And what the psalmist says in this moment is, notwithstanding all of that effort, none of it has been fruitful. All of it has been to no avail. He's been under these afflictions for a considerable period of time, and nothing, no instrument in his hand, No plan that he could contrive is sufficient in man's view to pull him out from under these difficulties. Again, friend, you and I are to recognize here that this is no trivial light or passing affliction. The man is genuinely at the extremity of his own capabilities. Uh, Again, if we go back to Heman, In Psalm 88, you find something very similar. When when there, Heman says, he says, I suffer thy terrors. When he does so, I am distracted. That is, he's put out of mind. He, he He has nowhere else mentally that he can go. 
He's at another standstill, not knowing how to move to the left or to the right. Not only is he here for a considerable period of time, and not only is he perplexed while he's here, but I want you to notice here that this is an incredibly pinching affliction. In that first verse, you find the psalmist going to God. And he asks, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Friend, that is not supposed to be read as hyperbole, as though the psalmist is exaggerating his affection. The psalmist feels the Lord at incredible distance. He feels as though the omniscient God has forgotten him. And then you move forward through the psalm. He says, how long will you hide thy face from me? And then he expresses all of this as one having sorrow in his heart daily. These external afflictions that the psalmist no doubt is faced with are real and they're pinching. The friend, in the first two lines, you recognize, of course, that the psalmist's affliction is much deeper than the surface. It's far deeper than the skin. The psalmist has for a considerable period of time, and to a point that has driven him beyond his own comprehension, he has faced, friend, he's faced nothing less than that experience of spiritual desertion. What he describes here, friend, is exactly consonant with what he will describe elsewhere that consists of a man, of a soul, who feels God distant. And he's saying here that he's felt this for some time. Heman says he's felt it since his youth. as the psalmist in Psalm 102 will describe himself later. So ours certainly could say that his heart is smitten, withered like grass. And in Psalm 102, the psalmist says, this only drives him to forget to eat his bread. To eat his bread. The man has been brought to an extremity. Now, friend, as we look at this text, there are so many things of course, that we could say that that could be applied to any other part of the Psalter. Uh, This is a very common experience. And that's important for us to note at the beginning. This protracted, perplexing, pinching affliction. Friend, the psalm teaches us in Psalm 13 and throughout the Word of God that such experiences, they don't just occur in the lives of saints. The amount of times we encounter them in the Psalter, the amount of like experiences we read of throughout the rest of Scripture reinforce for us the idea that this not only occurs, but it's common for believers. This is such a very crucial point, friend, and and it's so important for us to think in these ways because... Friend, the temptation under these kinds of afflictions is ultimately to say that none have experienced what you now are. That that these things that have befallen you, as perplexing, pinching, and protracted as they are, none have been in a like case before. And, And the Psalter, friend, time and time again, and our own text reminds us that that's a lie. And friend, you need to recognize it's a dangerous lie. It's a lie that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4 urges his Christians there to to roundly reject, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Friend, why does he urge the believers there to to not think these things strange? Well, friend, for just a few reasons we could say that. That he does so, first of all, because, friend, whenever whenever the soul is persuaded that they are in a case unlike any other, that is only... That is only to make grounds for despair. This is how the flesh and the devil often will work against the believer. If he can convince, if the flesh can persuade the soul that none have been in a like case before, then of what use will be the directives of Scripture? And of what comfort could they draw from the experiences of saints in the past? Friend, this is always, always seemingly the the first step to draw the soul in to despair. Always the first step to draw the soul in to have hard thoughts of God. And so this psalm reminds us, urges us not to think so. A second reason why this temptation needs to be resisted powerfully, friend, is because that temptation is ultimately one of pride. To say that I am in a case like no one else before me or after me, Friend, often that is just a way of isolating oneself, making their pains greater than perhaps they really are, ultimately setting up, of course, the believer for another kind of fall. And so what we find in these first two verses, friend, is that it is common for the believer to be in afflictions that are of long duration, that press the mind, that press the soul into extremity, Even afflictions, as we find there, that touch the very heart of the believer. And so we find the man's extremity. In verses 3 and 4, we find his entreaty, his supplications. Now in verse 3, you have specifically his request. And the request, of course, is for deliverance. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Light in mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is, of course, language that's supposed to give us the idea of of one coming out from the grave because the psalmist's affliction is such that he feels as though he's nearly at the sepulcher, nearly at the end. But I want you to notice verse 4. He gives us the ground of this cry. He says, lest mine enemy say I have prevailed against him. A friend, it's this line that I want to probe further this evening. The psalmist is, in verse 3, praying for deliverance, but he's praying for deliverance for a very particular reason. So let's meditate on that just a bit further. I want you to notice, first of all, that you and I should not see in this any kind of personal vindictiveness. No, what we need to do is we need to remember who his enemies are, first of all. You remember, of course, David is a godly king. And you need to ask yourself, well, who are the enemies of a godly king? Who are the enemies of a pious man who is endeavoring to be faithful in all that God has set to his hand? What kind of person would oppose a man such as David? Well, the Psalter shows us who these kinds are. And in Psalm 9, the psalmist says that his enemies are the heathen, are the wicked. In other words, his enemies are God's enemies. And that certainly stands to reason, doesn't it? If David faithfulness, then who are the ones, friend, ultimately that will oppose God's faithful servant but the enemies of God? 
David's enemies or God's enemies. And so, friend, as you look at this request in verse 3, and it's ground in verse 4, the idea, friend, here is that, that David, though he calls them his enemies, is really praying against, ultimately, the enemies of God. But he notes, friend, in this psalm, that, that there is a particular kind of rejoicing that these enemies have in his fall. And that's also worth us considering. Why, why would the enemies of God rejoice at all? Whenever the un, when the godly fall, when the godly are faced with affliction, you perhaps think the answer is straightforward. In one sense, it is, but it's worthwhile looking at the scriptures for that, because in verse in, in verse two of Psalm three, the psalmist shows us that these are the kinds of folks who say there is no help for him in God. Here's a godly king, a faithful servant of God. And these ones are saying that, that his adherence to God will be of no profit to him whatsoever. Let a man endeavor faithfulness to, no, to whatever degree. It will do him no good. God will abandon him. There is no help for him in God. And friend, you can see why the ungodly would rejoice in such a thing. They who have spurned the cause of God for so long. They who have no interest in obedience to him. They who have no love for God. Friend, all that they would long for is opportunity, for occasion to, to rejoice in those seeming tokens that God will not come to the rescue of his people. It can be something of an apologetic for their own rebellion. Elsewhere in the scripture, you find the same kind of person asking this. What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit should we have if we pray unto him? If the godly are forever under such pinching afflictions, and even to the point of being overthrown, all that the ungodly will say is that this is proof positive, that there is no profit with the Lord. And if no profit with him, why should we pray him? And why, why should we serve him? My friend, if these are the enemies of God that David is praying here against, what is David really praying for in this fourth verse? What's so striking, friend, and this can't be missed as we look at this 13th Psalm, is that David is craving the deliverance of God, ultimately to confound God's enemies, ultimately to silence their blasphemies, ultimately for God's glory. Just very briefly, friend, this can't be missed. The ungodly watch the godly most just to see them fall. Uh, you know this as well as I do. The only time the church ever gets it into the headlines these days is whenever there is a, a scandal, an opportunity for the world to mock at, at the apparent weakness of the church. David's experience is very much like our own. Jeremiah had a like experience. He says, My familiars watch for my halting, saying, Peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and, and we will take our re revenge on him. 
Jeremiah in that same chapter says they're earnest to do this. They're earnest to watch for a fall so, so that they don't have to obey the word of God that came from his mouth. Again, friend, this is very much part and parcel of our experience today. The world watches you. And really, friend, they watch you mostly just so that they might triumph in your fall. Such was David's experience, so was ours. But this drives the psalmist to plead for his own deliverance, not for his own sake. Ultimately, friend, he craves deliverance from this pinching, perplexing, and protracted affliction for God's glory. And that can't be missed. The Psalter is filled with examples of this. And we we could really exhaust our time this evening by simply seeing how often these cries for personal deliverance are either implicitly or explicitly tied to the glory of God. But, friend, just for an example, representative of the rest, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. Note, friend, that the godly crave this deliverance, not ultimately for their own ends. In fact, the deliverance which they crave is not even an end in itself. The longing is that blasphemies would be silenced, that God would be exalted in this deliverance. And that really answers for us that second question that we began with. How can... How can these prayers consist with Christian contentment? Friend, the answer to that question is because the psalmist here does not make an idol out of his own deliverance. Ultimately, friend, what the psalmist craves is God's glory. And his craving for deliverance is subordinated thereunto. Allow me to put it to you this way. Friend, when you remember the life of David, and you remember after his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet had promised that the son conceived in that adultery would die. You remember David now for a week, goes and he, and he prays and he fasts. But then after he is told that his son has died, you remember to the marvel of the servants around, David takes up food, takes off cloth, and he resumes life as normal. And the servants marvel, and they say, why is this? Why is, he mar- why is he acting now? As though there is nothing to grieve when before, when his son was alive. He was a picture of grief. Well, friend, you remember David's response. I'm going to apply it to our text specifically this evening. You see there a man who prayed to God, even in personal concerns, craving most of all the glory of God and a resignation to the divine will. If David prayed for the life of his son as an end in itself, then David's behavior afterward makes no sense. But friend, like our psalm here, you find a man who craves deliverance for God's sake. And that means whatever form that deliverance may take, even if it means the psalmist's death, he's resigned to it so long as God is exalted. 
That is the psalmist's entreaty. And so we close here with the psalmist's expectation. In verse 5, the psalmist reflects on all that has gone before, and he says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. We need to recognize that in this fifth verse, the psalmist is not saying that he has changed his mind from anything that has gone before. All that he is saying is that everything that has come from him thus far has come from him as a man who hopes in God. And so, friend, you and I see that all that has preceded all of these verses beforehand really are the breathings out of a man who is possessed of true faith. What you see here is that wonderful, that that powerful example of the believer simply resting upon divine promise. Though he feels no deliverance at present, though even the Lord continues to seem and to feel so distant, he rests, he hopes, still in God. Now, I want you to notice, friend, that that the promises that the psalmist lays hold on here, um, really you're supposed to recognize that, that these are really those general promises that are given to all of the people of God. That God will be glorified, as we've already said, is the ultimate craving of the psalmist. And that has been promised. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. Friend, if you desire God's glory most of all, the the entirety of the divine word holds out the promise that he will be exalted in all of his dealings. For the psalmist, friend, and for ourselves, that ought to be a boon of consolation. Also, friend, you recognize that for the believer himself, that promise that the Lord will perfect that which concerneth him, friend, that pertains to the psalmist as something that is sure, something that he may hope in. And so those promises and the like, the best in, even though sensibly, the Lord seems at such a distance. But I want you to notice that this expression of, of confidence that the Lord will deliver him is also joined with a promise. In whatever deliverance, whatever form, whatever shape it may take, The psalmist says that he will sing unto the Lord. He will rejoice in the Lord's salvation. In other words, friend, you recognize that the psalmist is, of course, recognizing in verse 6 that the Lord has already dealt bountifully with him, though he's in such an affliction. But he's also saying that whenever this deliverance comes, in whatever way that it comes, he is pledging himself to the praise of God. Again, friend, this is not a man who prays for deliverance for his own sake. He's not pleading for life, friend, out of any selfish motive. He craves deliverance so that he may be one who continues in the praises of God. And he endeavors, even vows, to continue in that work once God makes known his deliverance. Now, friend, as we close, I want to raise really what I think is one of the central challenges from this text for us this evening, and that is that, is that, that very searching question. Can I pray for my own mercies for God's sake? 
Can I pray that God would be gracious to me, not as an end in itself, but ultimately for His glory? Can I be resigned to the divine will if for God's glory that deliverance takes a form that that I might not be praying for? What you see in Psalm 13 is the disposition of a man who is resigned to the divine will and who craves deliverance for God's sake. Friend, that's normative for you and for me. This is not for us to marvel at a man in the past. This is for us to recognize what godliness really consists in. What true godliness looks like under affliction. But the second point as we close from this psalm for our comfort is that the psalmist is persuaded. And you see this in the fifth verse. He is persuaded that every affliction has an expiry date. I want you to notice in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist does not tell us the specifics of that, ex- of that deliverance he expects. He simply, as a child of God, knows that these afflictions will pass. No matter how long they have been up to this point, they do have an expiry date. Friend, for the believer, that is true. Your afflictions will not last. And it's true, friend, most of the time in the lives of believers. Even the most pinching afflictions are of a very short duration. But let's say that you are like Heman. And from the days of your youth, you feel as though the Lord is continually keeping you under his rod. Even Heman recognizes that that too will come to an end. He calls him the God of his salvation. Deliverance will come. And friend, the psalmist in this text makes use of that promise, and so should we. You you need to set, friend, that promise against those fears that you will forever be in such affliction, that you will forever be under the rod. You won't. God has promised otherwise, and he will perform it. But I also want you to notice, friend, that in this psalm, you and I have a picture of a man who is acquainted with incredible difficulty. But he appeals to God, a God who who promised that he would send a Messiah, who by the lips of Isaiah was promised to be stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, a man who would be described as a man of sorrows, that we might have a sympathetic priest under like afflictions. And you and I are to recognize when the Apostle in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews 4 gives to us Christ in the ways in which he does, describing him as afflicted in in all of the ways that he there describes, you're to recognize that none have been under such perplexity. None, friend, have ever experienced affliction to such a degree as he. And as such, you have a genuinely sympathetic high priest. And no matter how perplexing, 
protracted. No matter, friend, how pinching your affliction may seem, the captain of your salvation endured more and is now a living and sympathetic high priest on your behalf. The psalmist, friend, only looks to God through Jesus Christ as he prays. And in those ways too, friend, so should, so should you and so should I. So may it be, friend, that as we do continue in this pilgrim path, that for God's glory we would lay hold of the promises of God. And that through Jesus Christ um, we would endeavor to live accordingly as those who have received much mercy and who have been given such promises. Amen.